Did you know that religiously unaffiliated Americans, so-called nuns, account for nearly one in four Americans? In today's Democratic Party, roughly four in 10 members are non-religious. That means both non-religious voters and secularly committed voters will increasingly shape the body politic. In a brand new 2021 book published by Cambridge University Press, from three heavyweights in the religion and politics space, John Green, who's with us today, David Campbell, who recently co-authored a book with Robert Putnam, American Grace, and Jeffrey Lehman, who's published at length on the growing causes of secularism. The three authors argue that we're partway into a two-decade inflection point of sorts, a secular surge. If you read the book, linked in the show notes, there's this recurring J-shaped curve in which, within this secular surge, those who never attend worship are the highest in number, those with no particular religion are next highest, and non-believers are next down on the list. And as Gallup pointed out recently, this clearly comes from somewhere. In 1999, fully 70% of Americans were members of some house of worship. But 22 years later, by today's latest survey data, that number has fallen to 47%, a stunning decline that will surely influence not only American politics, but American culture, and for decades to come. And while we don't know what the immediate years ahead entail, John, David, and Jeff help explain what's been happening now for two decades. To help explain what's underneath this secular surge, we're so honored to be joined by The Atlantic's Liz Brunig, a recent New York Times opinion writer, and before that, a Washington Post columnist, where she was a 2019 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. Liz dives in with John Green, co-author of the book, and both the founder and emeritus president of the Bliss Institute for Applied Politics at the University of Akron. John's also been a regular speaker at Faith Angle in-person gatherings over the years, and as a relative newcomer, I've quickly learned just how many DC journalists have him on speed dial, and for good reason, as you'll soon hear. So let's turn straight away to a data-rich conversation on how American religiosity is changing, why we're different than European secularism, and what philosophical and belief-conscious commitments are likely in the coming years to remain unchanged versus accelerate. Enjoy the conversation. Well, I, I guess one of the things that interests me about uh, the way we talk about religion in public life is that the way that religion itself seems to be increasingly unintelligible as a concept to not only a lot of people who cover it, but a lot of people who read about it. And I can't really decide if that's because religion is a nonsense category, which I do, I'm pretty persuaded that is the case, or if it's because, you know, this is rapid secularization uh, has just sort of removed the built-in, you know, hooks to hang that kind of knowledge on. So uh, what do you think are the major challenges to, to, you know, sort of decent and thorough coverage of religion in public life? Well, yeah, I think there's a couple of challenges. One issue is the increasing secularization of American society. Um, and our book is a lot about that. And so I think that what things that used to be taken for granted that people would know something about just from ordinary interactions in daily life um, no longer have the kind of currency that they once did. So I think that's part of it. Uh, but it's not just, I think, the growing 
secularization of American society. I think it's partly the uneven nature of that. And as we show in, in, in our book, there are really two different groups of secular people in the United States. There are those people who are merely um, non-religious, but have no particular set of secular beliefs, perspectives, or identifications. And, and I think those people are the ones that have the most difficulty with the concept of religion, particularly in a society that's well, it's always been religiously diverse, but it's becoming even more diverse and in new and complicated ways. Um, but it turns out that secularists, people who, who probably aren't particularly religious, at least in a traditional sense, but who are characterized by secular beliefs and, and perspectives, interestingly enough, they know a lot about religion. They don't particularly like religion, but not as a group necessarily hostile. So I think there are two different things going on here. I mean, one is a decline of traditional religiosity, but then simultaneously the development of a large group of genuinely secular people, that is people who think and live substantially from a secular worldview. John, maybe just following up on Liz's opening question about, um, about categories and uh, shifts, you talk in the book you've just written about this idea of the drunkard's search and the challenge of sort of uh, having perhaps the right, the right categories to be looking at, looking for with this spike in lesser religious Americans, uh, you know, per personal secularism and, and the like. Uh, what is the drunkard's search? What's the conundrum there? Well, that's a, that's a joke that's often told among social scientists. Uh, about a, a guy who was inebriated and was busy looking for his car keys. And um, a policeman stopped and tried to help him. And the uh, uh, policeman said, finally, are you sure you dropped your keys here? And he said, no, no, I actually dropped them over there, but I'm looking here because the light is better, and presumably under a street light or something. And, you know, social scientists and, and other people um, including journalists, um, often fall victim of the drunkard search. We look for things where it's the easiest to look, not necessarily where it's the best place to look. And the, example, the re reason we bring that up in our book is that with the um, declining uh, prominence of traditional religiosity in the United States, there's been a tendency to assume that the absence of religiosity means certain things. And, and partly because in any survey you, that's done today, any reputable survey, you'll have as one of the categories, along with religion, non-religious people. Uh, they're typically, we, we typically call them the nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, as in none of the above. When asked about religious affiliation and other aspects of religion, they say none, nothing, nothing in particular, that kind of response. Um, but, but that's a category defined by the absence of something or some things, not by the presence of something. And, and historically, when we've talked about religion and religiosity, it's been defined by certain affiliations, by certain beliefs, by certain practices. Those practices are no longer as dominant. They're still very common in the United States, but they're no longer as dominant as they once were. So what we set out to look for were um, 
if you will, bona fide secularists, people who um, exhibited a secular worldview and their affiliations, beliefs, and behaviors. One of the things that I find sort of difficult is that religion seems to have been subsumed under the umbrella of identity categories, where it's often spoken about or written about more as like a race or a gender or, a, or an orientation than um, a series of, you know, practical, ideological and metaphysical commitments, you know, ideas that one subscribes to. And this is, it's especially difficult for me as, a, as someone who writes about religion because, you know, when, I'm, when I have been offered jobs as a religion reporter, I say, I don't know anything about religion. I only know about Catholicism. I have no clue about, you know, the ins and outs of Hinduism, for instance, the practices or the ideas or the metaphysical commitments. And it would take a lifetime to learn those things, I believe. Because the deeper you go into any given religion, the more obviously and extremely different it is from other things we also call religions. Um, and I think that's sort of a major problem because it cuts against the tendency of America to say, oh, well, you know, there's a big umbrella under which many things fit and ultimately these things unite us more than they divide us. And I'm not actually sure that is the case with religion. Um, do you worry about the sort of decline of, you know, religious literacy on the whole? Or, or do you think that, you know, kind of a, a growing interest in, you know, specific identity categories could be a good thing insofar as it creates opportunities to have people writing who maybe don't cover religion as a, a broad phenomenon, but cover specific traditions in depth? Would that be better, do you think? Is that something that, I don't know, could be beneficial to a, a rapidly secularizing country? Well, you know, when a society becomes more diverse, then just to navigate, whether one's doing this as an ordinary citizen or as someone whose task it is to help explain uh, these changes, um, we need to have some kind of common knowledge, some kind of common framework. And interestingly enough, in the academic study of religion in the United States, there are a lot of tools that are useful for that kind of study. But these are not the kinds of tools that these today are, are widely available or, or, or widely accessed uh, by most people. So, for instance, I often run into what you just talked about. When I talk about religion, um, many people immediate, these days immediately adopt an identity framework. So... You know, if you're a Catholic, or if you're a Methodist, or if you're Jewish, that tells me everything I need to know about you. And there certainly are religious groups in the United States where um, belief, behavior, and belonging, those are academic categories, by the way, fit together so cohesively that you really can talk about the anyone that's within that um, orbit as having a, an identity, and the identity stands out above all else. But it turns out that in many, many religious traditions in the United States, belonging is only one aspect. Uh, believing and behaving are equally important, in fact, sometimes more important. And it's interesting that you mentioned Catholicism, because in the United States today, Catholicism, while a real thing, is uh, a, quite a diverse thing. It's, it's a bundle of different 
types of people, different kinds of practices, and different kinds of beliefs. So you know, it's really interesting when I talk to political reporters about religion and elections, they will often ask me, so where's the Catholic vote in this election? And you know, I try not to be facetious, but my answer is, which Catholic vote are you talking about? Because there are at least four, and maybe more, depending on how you divide it. So for instance, there's a huge difference in politics between what we usually call white Catholics, that's Catholics of a European background originally, um, and uh, non-white uh, Catholics. But also, even among white Catholics, there's strong differences between highly traditional Catholics, those that are very modernist or very progressive, not necessarily in their politics, but in their religious beliefs and practices. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of Catholics in the middle, the centrist Catholics, the moderate Catholics. Um, so I, I see your point. Um, if one uses an identity framework, then Catholicism is pretty hard to understand in the United States today. On the other hand, if one were to take the diversity of religion, and as we show in our book, non-religion, um, then there are identities, but there are also beliefs. There are also experiences. And there are also behaviors that people engage in. I was just listening to some remarks from David Ignatius at Washington Post, who talks about being in Beirut um, and very closely, just barely missing uh, being bombed at the embassy in 1983. And he said basically that in following up with a number of people close to that situation, that he he couldn't simply write a column or he couldn't simply write a long form article first at Wall Street Journal, then at the, the Washington Post, because there was just there was just too much too much complexity. There was too much to tell. And I thought of that in in reading what you say about uh, several different religious traditions, where you know the predictive religiosity is different than you might think. You you sort of break out the sort of non-religious priority from secularism. And you say half of American Jews, two-fifths of mainline Protestants, and fully one-third of Catholics score above average on the personal secular personal secularism index. Um, is that part of what you're you're saying here to, to, to Liz? Is it this sort of there's a there's a large secularism component in the lives of many people who are quote unquote religious? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a really important point and, and one that we, I think, demonstrate uh, pretty effectively in, in our book. And that is that if we think of secularism as a set of perspectives that reflect a secular worldview, there are religious people, people who otherwise um, have religious beliefs and engage in religious practices and so forth, that also share those beliefs. Um, you know, one of the, the things that's uh, been difficult for uh, American academics to try to explain is the fact that in many, many of our religious traditions, we have a, a strong modernist component, if you will, but we also have a strong traditionalist component. Um, and it turns out that many of the modernists are, by most measures, pretty religious people, but, but there's something else going on there. There's another set of beliefs and perspectives that don't necessarily, in their minds at least, contradict their religiosity, but fit with it in some complementary fashion. But then there are religious people who, who don't share any of those uh, secularist perspectives. Um, and 
and actually find themselves uh, oftentimes arguing against them. So I, I think one of the advantages of separating non-religiosity, the absence of religion in all the ways that we're talking about from secularism is because the two things while related to one another are not the same thing, you can have the presence of both in individual people's lives. And, and I think that does help explain some of the complexity that we encounter these days when we, we talk about religion. Could you say a little about the ethics, I mean, the worldview, I should say, of, of these strong secularists? Sure, I can tell you a little bit about, um, about how we went about measuring it. Um, and, you know, we're social scientists, so my, and I, I should mention here that um, I'm just one of the co-authors of this book. My other two co-authors are uh, David Campbell and Jeffrey Lehman, both of Notre Dame University. And um, one of the things we were looking at was what are the kinds of beliefs that, that would characterize a secular worldview? Um, and so let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, one of them, it turns out particularly powerful, is uh, agreement or disagreement with the following statement. Factual evidence from the natural world is the true source of beliefs. Now, there are people who, who strongly hold to that perspective. There are people that strongly disagree with it. And there are people who say, well, not so fast. It's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Um, empirical evidence from the natural world is an important part of coming up with beliefs one finds to be true, uh, but there are other things involved there as well. Um, another uh, question we asked that turns out to be very powerful, and that is, when I make important decisions in my life, I mostly rely on reason and evidence. Now, I know lots of religious people who would agree but I also know some religious people that would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're missing the spiritual component. Uh, you're missing other sources of, of information for, that are relevant to making decisions. So there's just a couple of examples. Uh, another question we developed that turned out to be very powerful is uh, what we call secular salience. In the sociology of religion, scholars have often noted that there's a really important difference between people to whom their religious beliefs are very salient, very important in their lives, and those who have them, but, but they don't have quite the same priority. But we developed a, a parallel measure where we asked people, thinking about um, your own life, how important are secular beliefs and perspectives uh, in giving you guidance in, in daily life? And it turns out that people who say those things are very important are not just different from people who don't share a religious perspective, but uh, they also separate them from people who do share a religious perspective. So a lot of this has to do with the priority that people assign to different kinds of information. Is, is there a possibility, I mean, so listening to you talk about the secular worldview, it sounds like another way to put that would be it's a liberal worldview and not liberal versus conservative, but liberal in the, in the true political sense. This is like classical liberalism, empiricism, uh, you know, rationalism, and so on. Um, is, there, is there any possibility the United States being this sort of liberal country par excellence could have ever turned out any other way, do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and 
I'm disposed to think that maybe not. They couldn't have turned out any other way, given the dominant values in our culture from the beginning of the European settlement. But at the same time, it's important to note that part of the religious diversity of the United States from the beginning has been people who didn't share those values and pushed back against liberalism in that philosophic sense of the term. Um, and we have examples of those folks, you know, in, in the United States today. They've always had, a, they, they, they found it easy to persist, but they found it very difficult generally to expand and grow because in a very fundamental sense, their religious beliefs were pushing against many of the dominant values of, of their neighbors and friends. You know, one of your colleagues uh, pointed out somewhere, I think in an interview, that that the Democratic Party is often thought of as being highly secular. But of course, in reality, there are these sort of two wings. That is, you know, African-American voters who are highly religious and Latinos who are also relatively highly religious. And and I wonder if that, uh, you know, piece of, of the country is significant in some way in terms of the sort of uh, secularizing future and trends that are happening. But I'm, I, I want to actually ask a slightly different question, John. Can I ask, you know, secularism in uh, Europe is perhaps a different thing than, than this trend line that you guys have uncovered and that the Gallup poll has uncovered here in the United States. Um, how do they compare? How, how's the thickness and depth and history of, of secularism, the thing in, in Europe, uh, different than the, the trend lines that you see here in the United States? I think conceptually they're very similar, but I think the difference, a really important difference is a different social content. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the United States, where, there have, where, where religion has often been extremely important, there has never been the kind of official state religion that existed in most uh, countries in Europe. So there was one of the ways that one opposed people in power historically in Europe was to oppose religious establishments. The United States doesn't have and never really had a religious establishment of the same uh, caliber. Um, but of course, there were lots of different groups in the United States that would have liked, and maybe for brief periods of time in particular places, did have a religious establishment character uh, to them. So it, I, the way I put it is the American context has always been more diverse in these terms, much more free reeling, and the state, what we would call the government, or what Europeans would call the state, was never as thoroughly implicated in those things as it was in Europe. So Europe, uh, where Europe and the United States are very, very similar is not so much in secularism, but in the decline in uh, religiosity. So many European societies have a very large proportion of people who are what we would call non-religionists. Now, the United States is late to this trend, only really appeared in the last 20 or 30 years. But it's become a big deal, and, and there's every reason to believe it's accelerated. So one way that the United States is becoming a lot like Europe is a, a lot uh, less traditional religiosity. But I think secularism in the two places uh, differs substantially. Now, that's interesting. Uh, so with America kind of catching up with Europe in a certain respect, in terms of non-religiosity and also having this very strong 
liberal current. It's, it seems to be kind of turning out, you know, people who are not unlike many of the founders, right? Sort of people with a benevolent uh, kind of humanitarian morality who don't believe in anything special metaphysically. Do you think that's contributing or, or could contribute to the sort of polarization of American life? Um, this sort of vast gulf that seems to be opening and widening between, you know, people who are maybe committed conservatives on one side, committed liberals on the other, to use liberal in the more traditional American sense. But there's something else about it, too. There are cultural poles that are difficult to attach to any particular policy. Do you think that the, the secular surge is, is, is contributing to that or, or is a symptom of it? Well, you know, I, I do believe that the secular surge is contributing to polarization in the United States. Um, but, it, you know, these, if you look at these things over time, you know, the arrow of causality could go the other way, right? It could be that polarization is contributing to um, a decline of religiosity and increase of, of secularization. But, but clearly what we do have is a, a large number of people who are not as connected to religious institutions, even in a vague, general, largely benevolent sense, uh, than they used to be. Uh, and what we have increasingly in many religious communities is people who are very traditional in their perspectives. Now, as you pointed out earlier, um, this means different things in different traditions, but but they find a certain identity uh, in that in that tradition, and they also recognize other traditionalists. They may not share the same tradition, but they, they recognize them. But then on the other hand, you have an emergence of a group of people who, um, where the secular worldview has become dominant. And while those people are not necessarily hostile to religion per se, they do find aspects of it that, that do bother them. Um, so, you know, as, as uh, we were just pointing out, um, it's easy to see in today's Voting statistics, for instance, um, a, a strong secularist uh, group of voters in the Democratic Party and a strong traditionally religious set of voters in the Republican Party. But it, it, it's much more complicated than that, because if you look at the Democratic Party, many, many of its core constituents are made up of people who are religious, and many of them actually traditionally religious. And in, in the Republican coalition, there were libertarians. Uh, there are people who have only the vaguest connection uh, to religion. And, and when they think about it, they may think about it in, in more general terms, like nationalism, rather than, than in terms of a metaphysical perspective. So these changes, the increase in non-religiosity, the increase in secularism, create divisions between our major political parties. And that's a lot of what polarization is today. The, uh, but it also creates divisions within the major parties between people who are more uh, religious in the traditional sense and those who are markedly less so. You know, I have a question about, I guess it's not elites and populists, but it's more about education as a factor. You cite in the book um, Pippa Norris, who's going to talk to a group of journalists this fall, uh, and her colleague, I think it's David Englehart, um, out of Michigan, about this notion that the two of them say that the share of religionists with a college degree is only slightly below what that is for the population as a whole. 
that is 24% compared with 26%. In other words, that there are relatively uh, more better educated secularists than uh, religionists who have a college degree. Um, is that exceptional for the United States compared to other countries? Is is your sense that that is part of a, a larger arc of some kind where many, um, you know, go off to college and get brightly educated and are on fire and for a certain set of ideas and then eventually as they marry and they have children, they, they arc back toward more traditional forms of religious engagement. What's behind that? When we look at secularism, uh, secularism per se, there really is a strong connection to religion, to education here in the United States. Uh, better educated people tend to be more likely to partake of a secular worldview. But that doesn't mean that they're all, you know, card-carrying atheists by any means, because there are lots of um, religious people who are well-educated as well. In the United States these days, the strongest gap is between non-religionists and secularists, because many, many of the non-religious people have just, just either they never were particularly religious or they've just kind of, it's become a matter of indifference to them. They tend to be among the less well-educated people. Now, it could very well be that what's going on is that as um, higher levels of education have become very common in the United States, the people who have access to those levels of education, find ways to sort out the complicated world we live in. Some of them, um, you know, by adopting secular perspectives to a greater or lesser extent, but others are finding ways to accommodate tra uh, traditional religiosity to one degree or another. You know, one of the things we get a lot of questions about when people read the book is we, we create some crude categories based on our uh, concepts of non-religiosity and secularism, in some ways, one of the most fascinating of the categories is what, what we call the religious secularists. And you alluded to them a little bit earlier. These are people who, if you just looked at their religiosity, you'd want to put them over there with the religionists. But if you looked at their embrace of secular beliefs and identifications, you'd want to put them over with the secularists. They're kind of in between. And it could very well be that that's where a lot of the action is in these sorts of disputes among people who, even within their own lives, even with their own minds, are trying to work these things together. Those people tend to be very well educated and, and because they know a lot and, and they, they feel a need to make sense of the various things they know. So, you know, in the coming years, as America continues to secularize, because, you know, as you point out, it seems to be an accelerating trend, or it's certainly not decelerating. Um, what do you suspect the impact will be on the way that we do politics? I mean, at some point, people are going to stop being as interested in the Catholic vote, or, um, or the interest in the Catholic vote is going to polarize, you know, strictly to one side. You know, do you predict sort of... Uh, and negative changes, positive ones? What do you see in the, ahead for us? Well, I think the, there are um, potentially big changes in politics. And it's not clear to me exactly who's going to prevail uh, from these changes. Uh, but, but I do think that religious communities used to be able to count on a large group of fairly indifferent members, people who were raised in a particular faith, who took some of it for granted, but it wasn't terribly important for them. 
those people are less and less connected to religious communities and more and more just out there, you know, without um, connections to religious communities. Um, in that context, we're seeing the development of some strong secularist communities that we have a whole chapter about that. We think that there could very well be uh, a uh, secular left that's as well organized and as sophisticated politically as the quote unquote religious right. We think that's a few years in the future, but, but that certainly could happen. Um, but what we may be seeing by the, these trends is the hardening of constituencies that are traditionally religious versus those that are um, in a sophisticated way secularist. And so part of the battle in the future might be over the nuns, right? The people who are neither particularly secular in their outlook, but certainly not engaged in, in religion. And as we traditionally understand that, and it's sort of a really interesting question of where that growing group of people, people who are non-religious, if you will, where they're gonna end up politically. Traditionally, we've tended to think, well, those people are just some of the independents. Well, it turns out that it's much more complex than that. We show in our book that a lot of the strong supporters of Donald Trump were people who were indifferently religious. Uh, they had some kind of religious connection, but they were mostly non-religious in their beliefs and behaviors. So really kind of interesting idea. So where do these people end up uh, as their numbers grow over time? John, you are um, a political scientist. You're not a pastor. You're not a armchair, you know, psychologist or psychoanalyst or historian, really. Uh, but I, I want to run run idea by you that um, Christian Smith flagged with some of the younger journalists who gathered just prior to the pandemic, which was about sort of how America sees the concept of God through a national lens, through a, a historic lens. And he, he basically said I mean, that one of the reasons he thought that belief in God began to decline and sharply decline in the 90s and beyond was that uh, pre-1989 fall of Berlin Wall and, and the fall of communism uh, you know, in 1991, there was this sense that, that godless communism was our enemy, that God was on the side of, of liberty and democracy and rule of law, and that godless communism was the enemy, and that come 2001, uh, religion was most associated with 9-11, uh, with, with terrorism. And essentially, it was religion and terrorism or jihad that we had to be sort of postured against. Uh, does that have any credibility with you, uh, that thesis? What do you think more broadly caused this decline in religious belief and the ascendancy of, of personal secularism and non-religiosity these last three decades? Well, there are all kinds of things, and, but let me address that caused the decline of religiosity um, and the secular surge that we write about. But let me address Christian Smith's idea. I, I happen to agree with Chris. Um, you know, if you, if you look at how people see religion, throughout most of the period of the Cold War, from the end of World War II in the middle of the 20th century up until the fall of the Berlin Wall, for all kinds of reasons, but particularly because of the international situation, the many, many Americans saw religion as on balance a good thing. Whether it was 
really important in their lives or not, it was seen as a good thing. And I think particularly when survey researchers like me come out and at, call people at dinner time and ask them, you know, you know, what do you think about things? There, there was a positivity bias towards religion. Now, it wasn't 100% positive. Almost anybody could come up with some things about religion or some religious groups or some uh, fallout from religion that they didn't like. But with the end of the Cold War, I think Christian Smith is right that a, a strong positivity element about religion disappeared. It disappeared really pretty quickly as these things go um, and was replaced by a very negative view of government. And a, a way another colleague might have put it is that um, we, you know, we, for several decades, the United States faced godless com communism. And then it began to encounter, in a, in a very short period, in a very uh, dramatic way, uh, godly terrorists. And it wasn't, you know, very hard for a lot of people to begin to think that, you know, maybe religion isn't, all things considered, necessarily a positive thing. And I think that reinforced some other things that were going on in the United States, where there were these religious, secular, and uh, tensions um, that, you know, produce some, some fallout as well. Um, so, you know, I, so I do think there's an awful lot about that. Um, you know, we, it, we're fond, these scholars, of talking about how we live in a global world. And then we proceed to act as if the United States was, you know, isolated. And, and what Smith points out is that even in something as basic as how we see religion as a positive or negative thing, the international context really matters. Do you think that, uh, you know, given the composition of uh, the American population and, and the way things have tended in terms of polarization and the, the way that our electoral system works, let's say, do you, do you have any kind of hope in the rise of a religious left similar to a religious right? I, I read about this all the time. Pretty much every year there's a new story about a rising or burgeoning religious left, and I, I simply don't see it. I don't see it happening, and I don't see it in the numbers, especially considering the way that left versus right politics break down among um, secular and non-religious people versus religious people. Um, but what do you think? Is that something that's on the horizon, or, or has that moment sort of passed? You know, my sense is that the, um, the moment of the religious left has passed. Uh, that in the 1960s, 70s, and even up until a couple, maybe a decade ago, um, there was a considerable amount of energy among people who had traditional religious commitments, broadly defined, but connected those to uh, progressive or liberal politics, at least on a number of important issues. Um, I, I think that that prospect is, or that type of politics is fading um, substantially. And one reason it's fading is because of the secular surge. Um, a lot of religious liberals, even a few decades ago, stood with one foot in either camp. On the, on the one hand, they wanted to be very, they, they admired the traditional values of their religious community. On the other hand, they saw a dramatic need for change. And in some areas, um, this was very fruitful. In other areas, it was extremely painful. Um, about 20 years ago, I 
met with a group of evangelical liberals, people who wanted to be part of or, or saw themselves as part of a religious left. And um, two things struck me. One was how similar their views on, say, social welfare were to secular liberals. But on the other hand, how certain key controversial issues like abortion just caused enormous angst among them because many of them felt that their religious values pushed against a strong pro-choice position on abortion. And so they found themselves in tension with, and sometimes conflict with their natural allies when it came to social welfare. And they, of course, arrived at a social welfare perspective out of their religious beliefs. I think an increasing number of religious leftists, if you will, religious liberals, find this tension just too difficult to handle. So they've either withdrawn from politics or they've made a choice to go in a more secular direction or to work with um, in, a, in a more religious context on other types of issues. So I, I just don't, I see a fading of the religious left in the United States now and, and for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think that's right as well. Um, and again, I think it, there are a lot of consequences entailed there for, for politics um, and, and, and trying to understand each other across the aisle. So, so based on your book, how, what do you think are the, you know, your biggest priorities for helping Americans uh, attain some kind of religious literacy? Um, what do we all need to learn? Maybe the top three things. What can we make the most sense of that will help us actually understand the religious landscape we're in today? Well, now I'm going to sound like a college professor because that's what I was for a long time. But, but I think there, there are three, the, the top three things. One is to recognize that um, religion is very important in the United States. Part of the religious landscape are people who are not religious in one way or another. Um, it's very important to recognize that. Secondly, it's important to know that there's a lot of diversity across the board. Not all religious people are alike. Not all non-religious people are alike. If we talk a good game about diversity, well, this is a place where the diversity is just exploding before our very eyes. That's something we need to know. And the third point I'd make is not only is there a lot of diversity when we talk about these things, but there's an extraordinary amount of dynamism. The change, the pace of change is very, very rapid. Now, when I look back at American history, there were similar periods of very rapid uh, change in the religio-secular landscape, if you will. Um, many historians have written very cogently about the Great Awakenings in the 19th century. We've had similar phenomena in the 20th century. Each one of these episodes is different because it occurs at a different time with different people. But what they all have in common is a period of flux. And at the end of that flux, things settle out, or at least they always have, into a new um, set of arrangements. I can't tell you what those arrangements will be, but if we understand the great um, diversity in religious and non-religious terms and the great dynamism, that, that equips us to recognize emerging changes as they emerge, and not just after they emerge. John, for the... 
journalist who's listening to this right now, are there particular survey outlets that you respect and suggest following? You guys cite you know, Gallup, Pew, and PRRI, and General Social Service. You do your own work, but what should what should what should the 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 student of this uh, aspect of American politics be following? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, survey research, which is how we know a lot about this is this sort of phenomenon, um, has its own set of crises because of technological and sociological changes. It's more and more difficult to gauge people's opinions, let alone their beliefs, their behaviors, and how these things all fit together. Um, so so the, the two groups I'm going to mention won't surprise anybody. Uh, they're very, very well known. But what they have in common these days is a real dedication to um, new measure, measurement strategies to be able to cope with how difficult it is these days. Or rather, put it another way, how things have changed so dramatically when it comes to figuring out uh, what people think and how they behave. And one of them is the Pew Research Center. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I have a long-standing relationship with them. But what's always admired, I've always admired about them is not only are they very good and very precise, but they're very aware of the limits of their methodology. And the other group is, is the Gallup organization. Long tradition in studying these things, but also a real understanding that um, to get to what's happening now, we're going to have to change the way we study and measure it. So it's a, we're, in a, we're in an awkward moment where we don't quite know what's going on because we don't quite know how to figure out what's going on. Oh, wow. No, it seems like a difficult thing to measure, um, especially because you know, religious traditions in the United States, they seem to change to fit the shape of the United States in a certain way, such that American Catholicism is different in a lot of respects than French or Italian Catholicism because they have different political histories. Um, and so we're up against not only measuring how people describe themselves, but trying to measure how they actually live and what those habits mean to them. And it, it seems like increasingly the the sort of atomization of religion, the ways in which it's become less about, you know, sort of a unified practice and more about a personal, internal, uh, spiritual set, uh, set of beliefs, which is, you know, something that's been in the making for many hundreds of years now, but seems especially prominent in the United States, makes it difficult to even think about how to measure religiosity is is that something that there's been a change over time in that difficulty of measurement is it something that you have thoughts about how to repair in some kind of way well you know the traditional way that the traditional thing that survey research worried about when they tried to get at these issues of religion and spirituality or secularism and you know there are there are kinds of, of secular spirituality as well um, it, it was how, how do we get beyond social desirability effects or social uh, undesirability effects? So for instance, when I started doing this kind of work, one of the things we worry about is if we just ask people what their religious affiliation would be, that people would make something up. And, and these things were not entirely made up out of, out of you know, the ether. People would remember something in their background. Um, well, Today, we don't have that kind of social desirability. So a lot of people, when you ask them 
um, if they have a religious affiliation, feel no particular pressure to have one. <laughs> so even though they might have one, um, they'll, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm none of the above or I'm a nun. Um, so uh, we were having to recalibrate um, what we worry about. We don't have to worry as much about social desirability effects. We have to worry about what you might call social indifference, which is that people don't look out into the world around them and see particular responses as desirable. It's a question of whether they see it as prominent or important in their lives. And that's one of the reasons that the concept of salience, what do people give priority to, what stands out as important in their life, is becoming an increasingly important thing to look at. Because when we can capture salience, no matter what the topic is, we tend to get much more valid and consistent responses. If, we, if we're asking people about something they don't care about and don't know about, we get very strange answers. <laughs> but people want to answer, right? They just, they just don't have much to say about that topic because it doesn't matter much. Well, I might name that the book is Secular Surge, and it's a privilege to have uh, someone front end of her a fruitful career ahead and someone who is in the latter chapter of his career, having just retired from the Bliss Institute, which you co-founded and have ran for 30 years. But thank you, John uh, and Liz, so much for, for being with today. You're very welcome. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good one. Faith Angle exists to open connections between leading journalists, scholars, and clerics. Thanks for listening.